The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning at verse 17. We'll be reading through verse 29 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Peter's second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading to verse 13 this evening. The word of our God. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they de deliberately overlooked this fact, but the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water 
by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning at verse 17, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. How could he? How could Ahab, under the influence of Jezebel, allow and even encourage people to worship Baal? How could he encourage them to offer up sacrifices to Baal and then participate in those sacrifices by eating food that was offered to idols? How could Ahab allow Jezebel to kill the prophets of the Lord and then to murder Naboth, even as he desired to take Naboth's vineyard? Ahab was raised in Israel, he knew the Torah, and he was privileged to lead the covenant people of God as king. Yet he went along with Jezebel, and it seems like he went along with a great deal of enthusiasm in leading the people of God to crassly violate the Lord's law. So we ask once again, how could he? We'd like to imagine that Ahab perhaps very different from us, that he was distinctly and perhaps even uniquely evil. But that is not the reality. Turns out that greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor are as endemic to the 21st century as they were in Ahab's day. And the root of the matter is not just out there in the world. That's the really bad news for us this evening. It is also in the church. In his letter to the church at Thyatira, our Lord writes this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. It is really important for us to grasp that Jesus Christ is not writing that letter to the world. He is writing it to the church, a church that has become shockingly worldly. Well, let me suggest a reason how the church, like Ahab, could drift so dramatically from what the Lord tells us in his word. What Ahab was doing was completely in line with what all the other pagan kings in the Middle East were doing. That is, Ahab was not violating the norms of ancient Middle Eastern monarchs. In fact, if Ahab had obeyed the law of the Lord, he would have stood out as a shocking exception to the way the rest of the kings were behaving. We can say the same thing for the church in Thyatira. Um, sexual immorality in the first century in the Roman Empire was just absolutely rampant. And it wasn't simply tolerated that people would offer sacrifices to idols. Everyone was doing it. Uh, to abstain from doing that was to mark yourself out as someone who was being antisocial, right? judgmental, intolerant, the thing that the church in our own day frequently gets accused of. The Christians who participated in these sacrifices were not in violation of societal norms. As I say, in fact, they would have stood out as being antisocial and intolerant if they refused to participate in eating the food that was offered to idols. So here's the question. Isn't that a very real challenge that we face in our own day and age? Not only as individuals, but also as a church family. There are standards of conduct in our culture, and if we conform our lives to those standards of conduct, we can think of ourselves pretty highly. Or, at the very least, we can pull out one of the oldest excuses human beings have ever tried. Everybody's doing it. Let that be a warning to us. Ultimately, it is the Lord's standards that matter, not those of our community, our university, or the New York Times. We cannot simply say everybody is doing it and have God just nod politely and say, well, I guess at least you're trying. Uh, tonight's passage consists almost entirely of three encounters. Uh, the Lord speaks with Elijah. Elijah gives the Lord's word to Ahab. And then the Lord speaks to Elijah a second time. Uh, we're going to look at tonight's passage under three main headings. First, the verdict decreed. Second, the verdict announced. And third, the remorse of Ahab. Let me give those to you once again. First, the verdict decreed. Second, the verdict announced. And third, the remorse of Ahab. We begin with the verdict decreed in verses 17 through 19. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you will say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Now I want to say, undoubtedly at this time, Ahab thought he had gotten away with it. He had coveted Naboth's vineyard. Jezebel had Naboth murdered. And now Ahab had taken possession of the, of the vineyard for himself. In fact, Ahab was standing on that very plot of Naboth's ancestral land, admiring his new acquisition as the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And if anyone in Jezreel was unhappy about it, they were going to keep silent. After all, Ahab was the king, and they saw what Ahab and Jezebel were willing to do with those who crossed them. But beloved, there is another king, a king who sees everything and rules over everything. As the author of Hebrews puts it, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. Uh, there's a sharp point for us to consider. It's actually so easy for us to become so concerned about what our boss thinks, what our neighbors think, what our family members think, what our girlfriend thinks, but that crowds out the most important question, which is, what does our God think? Now, it's not wrong to be concerned about what other people think of us. Uh, that's actually one of the things that helps correct us in life, is when we do things that other people say, that's out of bounds, right? We learn from that. The problem is, if we become so concerned about disappointing boss or coworker or girlfriend that we no longer care about God. And in that case, our desires have run off the rails. As Jesus would later put it, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. At that very moment when Ahab had finally laid hold of, taken possession of, the thing that he had coveted, Almighty God is decreeing his judgment. Ahab was saying, this is now all mine. God was telling Elijah, Ahab and his family are utterly doomed. And did you notice the language that the Lord uses? Ahab is saying, mine. But the Lord says, it's the vineyard of Naboth, right? It does not belong to you. There is a poetic justice in the Lord's sentence about Ahab. He will die in the vineyard that he coveted. His blood will be spilled in the vineyard of the man that he and Jezebel had murdered. We were not actually told previously that um, Naboth was murdered in the vineyard itself. And there's a detail added here, but the dogs had licked up his blood. 
That would have actually been particularly harrowing to the ancient Jewish people, though it was very important for people to be buried. It was a way of saying he was so discarded that he was just murdered and just left there. Not, not for cute puppies, but for the beasts of the field, as it were, these unclean creatures to come and consume his body. In ancient Israel, that was to add an additional insult and disgrace on top of the physical harm that had already been done to him. And the Lord is telling Elijah, the very same thing is going to happen to Ahab. The question that the Lord gave Elijah to ask to Ahab, or to pronounce to Ahab, it's really a rhetorical question, was designed to specify and expose Ahab's guilt. Ahab is being charged with both murder and stealing his neighbor's property. Yet Ahab's initial response was to treat the messenger of God like he was his personal enemy. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You've got to think about that expression, or both parts of it, a great deal. It's a horrible thing to think that you've sold yourself out for something. And in this case, Ahab hasn't sold himself out for something that's good. He has sold himself for the sake of doing evil in the sight of the Lord. He is so bent against God that when God's messenger shows up, he says, have you found me, O my enemy? As John Woodhouse points out, the last time Ahab had been surprised by Elijah, he had accused the prophet of being the troubler of Israel. But it seems that Ahab is no longer so concerned about Israel, he's only concerned about himself. No longer the troubler of Israel, but oh my enemy. And this time Elijah seems to have accepted the designation they were enemies, but that was not Elijah's doing. It is because you, Ahab, have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, if you actually think how the story's unfolded, there's something that's a little bit surprising, actually, about this greeting from Ahab to Elijah. The very last time they met was on Mount Carmel. Uh, God had sent fire down and consumed the sacrifice of Elijah, demonstrating that he was his prophet and that Yahweh was God. But that's not the last thing that Elijah says to him. The very last thing Elijah says to Ahab is, the God who has sent fire is about to send rain. That is, he's going to bring the drought to an end. Um, the last thing that Elijah had announced to Ahab was good news, was God's blessing. Nevertheless, Ahab is still seeing Elijah as his enemy. Why would he do that? Well, I think the answer is actually very straightforward. Ahab was at war against God. Elijah represented God. Therefore, Ahab was at war against Elijah. On a much smaller and less dramatic scale, we ought not to be surprised as the people of God when those who hate the Lord spread that hate around a little bit toward us, right, as his representatives. 
I think that's certainly what is going on here. The verdict has been decreed. Elijah and Ahab dramatically meet once again. Now the verdict is announced. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. Speaking for the Lord, Elijah says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. Now the details of verses 21 and 22 are actually different than the details in verse 19, but they're quite obviously the same judgment. I think the expressions, though, have actually been ramped up. Utterly burn you up and cut off are brutal expressions. And the judgment is not just a personal judgment on Ahab, who could at least look to his children and say, well, they'll do better than I am, and they will carry on my reign. The Lord is saying, because of the evil that has culminated in you and your reign, I am going to utterly cut your dynasty off. I will bring it to an end. As Walter Brueggemann points out, we might have expected the house of Omri to be more durable than the preceding dynasties. But the practice of a public ethic of exploitation is the death knell for any regime in Israel. The prophets regularly place monarchy in deep jeopardy because the stubborn purposes of Yahweh will not tolerate royal exploitation. Verses 23 and 24. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. What a horrifying judgment. I mean, it's gruesome just to think about it. It is truly a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jezebel was not even mentioned in verse 19, but now we see that the judge of all the earth has not left her out. Walter Meyer puts it well. The Lord singled out Jezebel because of her importing Canaanite religion into the northern kingdom. Her evil influence on her husband in the heinous role she played in the murder of Naboth. Because of her exceeding wickedness, dogs would eat her in the district of Jezreel. Um, this prediction did not necessarily say how she was going to die. It talked about what was going to happen to her after she was dead. It indicated a complete reversal from her present situation of power and luxurious wealth. Jezebel would not have an expensive state funeral and placement with honor in a fine tomb. Rather, her corpse would lie exposed out in the open to become food for despised creatures. Now, if we did not know how long-suffering the Lord has already been to Jezebel and Ahab, we might almost think the Lord is being really harsh here. Is our God a God that just flies off the handle and pronounces these extraordinarily severe judgments on people? 
Well, no, he does not. So the author of 1 Kings wants to remind us that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. It is striking that the Lord compares Israel under Ahab to the grossly immoral Amorites whom the Lord would drive out of Israel, uh, drive out of Canaan when the Israelites first come into the land. Uh, you probably recall that the Lord, in talking to, uh, to Abraham about his descendants going down to Egypt, says the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet been filled up. I'm going to wait till that wickedness is filled up, and then I'm going to bring absolute judgment upon them. And God is here through Elijah saying, that's my comparison with Ahab. It's as though it wasn't enough to compare him to Jeroboam, you know, the, the northern king who led Israel to sin egregiously and worshiping God in the wrong way. It wasn't enough to compare him to Baasha, an even more wicked king in Israel. He had to reach and go outside of the Israelites altogether to compare Ahab to a pagan, to the pagan people, the Amorites, and what they had done. This comparison not only marks out just how sinful Ahab had been in exploiting his position as Israel's king, I think it points to the coming time when the Lord will spew the northern tribes of the land uh, out of the land, just as he had done with the Amorites in the past. That's how that comparison is working for us. Now, I want to remind you that when you read 1 and 2 Kings, originally they were really written together. The reason why we have 1 Kings and 2 Kings is we have two scrolls. See, these are long books. Same thing with 1 and 2 Samuel. So you ought not to think of them as separate works. They're actually one united work. So you would normally just keep reading from 1 Kings to 2 Kings. We're not going to do that in evening worship. We're going to stop at the end of 1 Kings. But as you read further into this work, we actually see God much later on looking back on this and talking about what he's doing in Israel as a consequence of the wickedness of Ahab and others of leading Israel into idolatry. That's why they're going to be sent out of the land. Uh, look at, well, don't look there with me, but um, in 2 Kings chapter 17, the Lord says this through the author of 2 Kings. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habar, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. See, the exile of the northern tribes 
by the Assyrian Empire is the direct result of the people becoming like the pagans. And that happens in its most dramatic effect under Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was absolutely the most wicked king in the history of Israel and Judah. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, and whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Now, as we contemplate the astonishing evil of Jezebel and Ahab, we're just really not prepared for what comes next in the passage. Verse 27, And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. If you haven't read this before, you would not have predicted that that's where this story was going. Now, I've titled this section, The Remorse of Ahab. Um, actually, in my first draft of the sermon, I titled it, The Repentance of Ahab. Uh, the problem is, is the Bible doesn't actually tell us with any great clarity of what's really going on in Ahab's heart. And I decided that repentance of Ahab actually said too much and that the evidence in the text suggests more that he was sorrowful over what happened to him, that he did, in fact, temporarily humble himself before God, but that he didn't fully repent with saving faith. There's a few pointers in this direction, uh, but we certainly cannot be uh, sure about a conclusion. For example, we are never told that Ahab cries out to the Lord for mercy. Right? He humbles himself, he's sorry, but he doesn't plead with the Lord to show mercy upon him. And as we turn the page, we're going to discover that Ahab does not have a significant reformation of his life. And we are told nothing of Ahab seeking to make amends either for his crime against Naboth or for leading the nation into Baal worship. Nevertheless, we do have the Lord's own testimony that Ahab had humbled himself before the Lord. Uh, the fact that the king is wearing sackcloth is in itself a sign that he is humbling himself. But whether or not this is simply regret, or Ahab has in fact exercised genuine faith, is just impossible for us to tell. Uh, I'm suggesting that it's probably best, as I have ultimately decided to do, to follow Dale Ralph Davis, who suggests that Ahab experienced genuine remorse rather than genuine repentance. One of the details in the passage that helps me push my thinking in that direction is Ahab doesn't talk to God, and God doesn't talk to Ahab. Right? We do not have Ahab crying out to the Lord for mercy, and we do not have the Lord sending a messenger back to Ahab saying, your sins have been put away, like we see with Nathan and David. Um, one way to think about that is there remains a lack of a personal relationship between Ahab and the Lord. Verses 28 and 29. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, 
I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, since the Holy Spirit does not actually fully reveal to us Ahab's psychology, what we ought to be seeing in these verses is not so much about Ahab, but about the Lord. This is a revelation of the Lord's own character and his willingness to show mercy. Isn't it remarkable, after Ahab has utterly spurned the Lord for so many years, even leading his people into gross idolatry, that the Lord would relent from smashing Ahab like a bug? Beloved, if you and I were Almighty God, Ahab would just be splattered. But the Lord doesn't do that. That is indeed remarkable. It also points us to the words of the Lord through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33. Uh, Back in Ezekiel, or forward in Ezekiel, it's after this portion of God's word, the people are in despair. Um, They have finally come to grips with their own sin. And now they think, we must have gone too far. God could not possibly forgive people like us. And perhaps some of you have wrestled with that in your own life. You come to grips with just how deep your rebellion against God has been, and you say, yes, I know God's grace is sufficient for other people, but I cannot imagine how he could forgive me. Beloved, that is one of Satan's greatest lies. But the Lord, the God of Israel, tells Ezekiel this, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die O house of Israel. That is good news about the character of our God. Nevertheless, there's still a bit of a nagging question from 1 Kings about what God is doing with Ahab's descendants. Here's the question. Is the Lord punishing the son for someone else's sins? Because he's relented from carrying out the punishment in Ahab's day, but he says he's still going to carry it out in the day of his children. Well, John Golden Gay suggests this. The implication is not that the son will be punished for the father's sins, irrespective of the son's attitudes and behavior. If the son repents, then the prophecy can be rescinded again. But the acts of parents tend to shape their children, and it is in this sense that the parents' sins are visited on their children. I don't know that we can know that that's the right answer for sure, but it, but it certainly strikes a scriptural idea, right? That, that the children aren't going to be judged for their parents' sins, but they are shaped by them. And so if Ahab's children walk in his ways, God is saying, that's it. That's when I'm going to bring the judgment and cut them off. We should also note that by not fully reversing the judgment upon Ahab's dynasty, 
The Lord is giving us a bit of foreshadowing regarding the eventual judgment upon Judah and the Babylonian exile, something that's going to take place much later in the story. When Josiah, who's sometimes called good King Josiah, repents as a young man, and he leads Israel to really implement large portions of the book of Deuteronomy, he is celebrated for being a good king. But the Lord does not turn completely from carrying out the judgment and sending his people into the Babylonian exile. So I think that tonight's passage is a bit of a foreshadowing of that tremendous event, that horrible event, in the life of Judah. Well, what then are we to make of tonight's passage? I think that fundamentally it's a revelation of the character of our God. The Lord is at the same time outrageously gracious, extraordinarily merciful, and also not someone with whom we ought to trifle. He's both all the time. Think about the great self-revelation of the Lord when he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses and to Israel the second time, right? After the golden calf incident, when, when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments to Moses the second time, the words of the covenant, he hides Moses, as it were, in the cleft of the rock, and he passes before him, and he reveals his own character. We're told this in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We began this evening by asking how Ahab could live like just any other pagan king. But if we stop there, that's not really a very useful question. The question we need to move to is not how could he, but how could we? Knowing that this is our God, knowing that Jesus Christ loves us with an everlasting love and has given his life for us, how could we possibly go on living like those who do not know him at all? Let us therefore heed these memorable words which the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen.